following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, for this morning, uh, we're going to push forward into chapter 8 of this book, which picks up the same themes, that uh, the same central themes they're talking about in that video, but develops them in a bit of a new direction. Uh, so chapter 8 of Daniel, we'll dive in, and I'm going to start, uh, I'll just read some selected parts out of this chapter. I think I'll start in verse 9, Rob, sorry to jump around on you, uh, and read from there. So this is uh, another vision that Daniel is having. Uh, here's what he sees. Verse 9, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the starry heavens, the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Uh, and drop down to verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Last night, Anna and I watched a movie on TV called Charlotte Grey, and uh, it's about a, a young Scottish woman during World War II, and she's recruited by the Secret Service to work in France, in the area of France that was occupied by the Germans at the time. And it's a fascinating glimpse into what life was like in occupied France in the 1940s. And uh, one of the things that comes through in the movie is that uh, for everybody in the country at the time, you had to carry with you constantly this document of non-belonging to the Jewish race. So you had to have papers uh, that could be requested at a moment's notice that proved you were not Jewish uh, and that you didn't have Jewish ancestry. And if you couldn't prove that, uh, that you were not Jewish, you could be uh, arrested on the spot, carted off, put on the trains, taken off to the prison camps and worse, and family and friends would never see you again. And it's just a reminder of what a horrible period of history it was uh, and just how awful it was that the Jewish people were singled out like that um, for no particular reason, but just singled out for such horrific 
horrific treatment. One people group targeted with such violence. And sadly, that is not the only time this has happened. The, the Holocaust is certainly the worst, and I don't want to undermine that, but it's not the only time in history that the Jewish people have been targeted and persecuted. And this chapter focuses on a vision that concerns another time period when the Jewish people were brutally and aggressively persecuted. It's not nearly as well known because this concerns events that happened in the second century BC, about 150 years or so before Jesus. But it was a time period in which the Jewish people suffered horribly, and it's remembered as one of the worst persecutions of the Jewish people in history. Now, it happened under a particular king who was described with this sort of symbolic language in this chapter. His name was Antiochus. He was a Syrian king. He ruled part of the Greek empire. At the time, the Greek empire was in power. That was the dominant empire in the, most of the known world. Uh, quite a long time after Alexander the Great, this other Greek king, Syrian king, arose. And his name was Antiochus. And under Antiochus, the Jewish people suffered horribly. He's described, if you look at verse 9, it talks about this horn. A horn in Scripture usually symbolizes strength, power, someone of a significant position. Uh, most people believe that this, this horn that grows up, it starts small and it grows powerful, that this represents Antiochus. And as you read through verse 9 to 12 and then over verse 24, 25, a lot of the exploits of this horn reflect the exploits of Antiochus during this period of time. Let me just take you through some of them. This horn sets itself up to be great in verse 11. You read that. It considers itself superior. It considers itself equal to the commander of the army of the Lord. So this horn thinks that it is rivaling God. This guy thinks that he is on par with God, and that reflects exactly what Antiochus did. He gave himself another name, Antiochus. The name was Epiphanes, and it literally means God revealed or God manifest. And he believed that he was the personal incarnation of Zeus, that he was the embodiment of the Greek god Zeus. That's who he was. So he had a lot of self-confidence, this guy. He really believed in himself, didn't he? I mean, that's a big ego. You believe that you are the personification of a god, believed that he was this divine figure, but he did. And he carried on accordingly. Now, he carried out these atrocities. It talks over in verse 24 and 25 about him destroying those who are mighty, uh, destroying many people. Antiochus led these massacres against the Jews. He just singled them out. He had it in for them. And he led campaign after campaign after campaign into Jerusalem to just kill as many Jews as he possibly could. Tens of thousands of Jewish people were killed in these, these bloody, uh, brutal massacres that Antiochus carried out. He was ruthless. He was awful. And then it talks in verse 11 about how he took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and the sanctuary was thrown down. Now that describes a period of time in which Antiochus focused on the temple, the Jewish temple, which was in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, religion, and worship, and he shut it down. He refused to let the temple function. He refused to let people offer sacrifices there. He refused to let people pray there, refused to let the priests carry out their work there. On threat of death, people were prohibited from doing anything in the temple. So that's what's being described, that the, the sacrifice was taken away. The sanctuary was, was thrown down. And then the worst act of all that Antiochus committed, it's described with this language in verse 13. About halfway through, you, you see this phrase, the rebellion that causes desolation. Well, most people believe that refers to a particular act of Antiochus. That one day he marched into the Jewish temple and he set up a pagan altar. 
right in the middle of the Jewish temple, not, not one of the actual proper Jewish altars, but just his own makeshift altar, an altar to the Greek god Zeus, whom he believed he was embodying. And on that altar, he offered a pig, the ultimate unclean animal, this animal ceremonially impure to the Jewish people. And he offered a pig there to the Greek god Zeus in the middle of the Jewish temple, the ultimate act of blasphemy, the ultimate act of sacrilege, just spitting in the face of God, spitting in the face of the Jewish people. He didn't care. This was who he was. And that's probably what's being described there as the rebellion that causes desolation. So this was an incredibly dark time for the Jewish people. That's how it is memorialized. This is how it is remembered. It was a time of intense and severe suffering under Antiochus. And remember, Daniel is hearing about all this a long time before the event. Daniel's back in the 6th century BC. This isn't happening till the 2nd century BC. He's separated by hundreds of years. This is a long, long way off for Daniel. And yet he's hearing about these atrocities that are coming. Now, he wouldn't know the details, but he knows enough to know this is going to be terrible. And that's why at the end of the vision, Daniel, it, it talks about how Daniel was appalled by this vision. I mean, he thought that his own circumstance of exile was bad enough. And yet he's hearing about this horrific suffering that's coming down the track. It's as if God is saying, Daniel, you think it's bad now? Just wait till Antiochus comes along. Wait to see what he does. And Daniel can't even work for the very extreme God himself. Now, obviously, this is a, a, a very extreme example of human suffering. Obviously, this was a terrible uh, time, and it's an extreme example of, of God's people suffering. God willing, none of us ever go through anything like that. God willing, we are spared from that kind of trauma. Although we need to remember those who have gone through times like this and continue to go through this kind of trauma, this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering in their lives. You just think about the uh, Palm Sunday bombings in Egypt, Christians in Egypt gathering on Palm Sunday this year to worship, sitting in their churches. Uh, terrorists came in, let off bombs, 40-something people killed. It's got echoes of Antiochus there, this targeted, awful act of blatant murder against the people of God. This kind of stuff is still happening. But largely here in the Western world, in little old New Zealand, we're largely spared from it. But I think the broader message of this chapter is simply that we do need to expect that difficulty, pain, and hardship are going to be part and parcel of life. That there will be seasons that come in our lives to a greater or lesser extent that are going to be really, really hard. Maybe not this hard. But they're going to be difficult, and we won't be spared from them. Jesus himself told us, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. That's no one's favorite promise. That's no one's favorite life verse. No one talks about claiming the promises of Scripture with that one, do they? We don't like it. It's not comfortable. But that's actually a promise. Jesus said, in this world, you will. Not you might, not maybe someday, but in this world, you will have trouble. It's a fact. Hardship, difficulty, anguish struggle, suffering, they are going to be part and parcel of life. That's just, that's just life. There's a guy named Scott Peck who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. And the first three words of the book are these, life is hard. And then he says this, this is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. Once we know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, 
The fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Now, I don't think he's saying that suddenly when you accept that life is difficult, life gets easy. But he's putting his finger on this irony that I think for a lot of us, we still have this basic expectation that life will be relatively straightforward. That if we make good choices, and if we are good Christians, then we should be spared from the worst that life can throw at us. And that in fact, the more that we grow in our faith and trust Jesus, really life should get better and better and better. And the problem is that if you hold that assumption, what's going to happen when trouble comes along? You're going to get knocked off your perch because you weren't expecting it. And it's a big surprise. And you didn't think it was going to be this way. And you felt entitled to something better. And what's going to happen is you get angry at God. You get angry at other people. You get angry at people that are trying to help you. You get angry at yourself because you thought you were, you were owed a better life. You thought you deserved a better life. You thought life was going to be easy. And now you feel like you're getting a raw deal. But if we can make peace with this basic truth that life is hard, a lot of the time, not all the time, sure, but a lot of the time life is hard, then in a sense, life gets easier. Not that your troubles go away, but you are better prepared to face them because you realize you're not, you're not guaranteed a hassle-free, trouble-free, stress-free life. That difficulty is part and parcel of life, and when you reconcile yourself to that idea, we are more prepared and equipped to actually confront what comes along with courage and with bravery and with determination. Life is hard. Sometimes I think the best thing you can do when life is hard is just have a good old laugh about it. I'm not talking about just laughing at people's suffering, laughing at atrocities that happen, but I mean when you go through difficult times, sometimes the best thing you can do is actually just laugh. I, I, I need this. I know for me, I just sometimes take myself too seriously, take life too seriously. Sometimes we just need to laugh. So I thought I'd give you a laugh this morning because otherwise this message will be a complete downer. Um, there's a great website called uh, despair.com. <laughs> if you're having a bad day, don't go there. But it's a great site. And what it does is, you know those motivational posters that are meant to inspire you? It just makes a complete mockery of them. It's fantastic. And it, and it replaces them with demotivational posters that are meant to discourage you. So let me give you a few of them. You might have seen some of these. Foresight. Those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those busy proving them right. That's a good one. You can order these posters if you want to. Next one, ambition. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> and lastly, downsizing. Because we're all in this together, but there's always room for one less. <laughs> uh, I might have crossed a line with that one. <laughs> there's lots of fun to be had. Sometimes you just have to laugh, right? Sometimes you just can't take life all too seriously. But the, a big part of this chapter is making the point that life is hard. It points towards a time for the Jewish people when life was going to get really, really hard. I think in the broader scheme of things, it reminds us all that there are going to be times coming that are really difficult. And we need to accept that. We need to make peace with that idea so that we're not rattled to our core when that happens. But alongside that, there are these threads of hope in the chapter. Even though, to be fair, it is a pretty gloomy chapter and a lot of the focus is on the tough stuff. There are these threads of hope and we need to cling on to them. We need to follow them and see where they lead. You look in verse 13. Daniel, here's someone asking, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? How long is all this going to go on for? And then the answer comes in verse 14. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, that's probably not what Daniel wanted to hear. He was probably hoping for something more like two or three days, maybe, a couple of weeks, 
it'll all be over. No, it's going to take 2,300 days for this to be over. Uh, This persecution of the Jewish people, it wasn't over in in a couple of days. It lasted years and years and years. But the point of that number, I think, and people argue as to whether it should be taken literally or symbolically, but the point of the number is that there is going to be an end to it. There is going to be an end to the suffering. It's not going to last forever. When you're in it, it'll feel eternal, but it is going to come to an end. And it did. It did for the Jewish people. Eventually, Antiochus died. He died of a sudden illness. And after he died, there was a group of, of Jewish people called the Maccabees, and they came into the temple and they cleansed it. They cleansed it of all the idols, all these altars, all this pagan filth that Antiochus and his people had set up there, they cleansed all that out and they rededicated the temple. That's what it's referring to here. They re-consecrated the temple, making it holy again. And they reinstituted the practice of sacrifice in the temple. They reinstituted prayer. They reinstituted the role of the priest and they rededicated themselves and their nation and the temple to God. And in fact, what happened there is that from that point onwards, the Jewish people enjoyed a time of peace and independence, semi-independence from the Greek empire that they hadn't enjoyed in centuries. It was actually an incredibly bright spot in an otherwise dark time of history. And that's a time now that the Jewish people still celebrate as, does anyone know? Hanukkah, yeah. So when you hear Hanukkah, and you hear about within Judaism, Jewish people celebrating Hanukkah, that's what it's referring to. It's these events that are being spelled out here in Daniel 8. It's not explicitly described in our Bible because it falls in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about 400 years in there that are not explicitly described. But that's what that's all about. Now, as Christians, we can look back at those events and we can say, yes, that was an incredible act of God's deliverance. That was an incredibly difficult time, but boy, God was faithful and he brought them through. But we can also say that that prophecy and that vision and that time period, it all pointed towards something even greater. It pointed towards something even even more spectacular that was yet to come. Because 150 years after Antiochus died, Jesus was born. And ultimately, Jesus fulfills so much of what is written in this prophecy. It's not specifically about him. But all prophecy in Scripture points to Jesus one way or another. He stands as the culmination of all biblical prophecy, including this one. Jesus himself suffered, didn't he, during his life on earth. He lived under the Roman Empire, whereas the the Jews talked about in Daniel 8 lived under the Greek Empire. But Jesus suffered tremendously under pagan evil rulers, people like Caesar Augustus and Pilate and Herod, these pagan kings and rulers. Jesus suffered tremendously to the point that it led him to the cross. It led him to crucifixion. But through his death, Jesus won a victory. And it was a victory that is far greater than the victory won by the Jewish people here. This was an amazing moment in the way it turned out. But it was eclipsed by the victory that Jesus won. Jesus didn't win a victory over an earthly king like Antiochus. He won a victory over the ultimate author of evil, Satan himself. Behind all evil, behind every form of human suffering, stands Satan the author and the source of all evil. And when Christ died through his death on the cross, he won this great victory over Satan, over the prince of evil. And he won a victory over sin, over death, over the powers of darkness and the forces of evil, over every demon that answers to Satan and over Satan himself. It was a spectacular cosmic victory. And then Jesus ushered in this time of renewal, even greater than that which came through the Maccabees, even greater than Hanukkah. Jesus ushered in this time of 
peace where we can be reconciled to God. Not just a political victory, not just a national victory, but a time of renewal where our sin can be forgiven, where we can stand in right relationship with God, where God's kingdom has now begun to be established on the earth. God's shalom has begun. The new creation is here. And we can be citizens of God's kingdom and members of God's family. That's the renewal that came through Jesus. So there are these two strands, really, weaving their way through this chapter. There's the strand of life is hard and it could get harder. And there's no promise of a hassle-free life. But then there's the strand of hope where Jesus has come and a victory has been won and Satan's been defeated. And so the final question we need to answer then is how do you hold both of those together? I mean, if Jesus has won such a spectacular victory over Satan and all the forces of evil, why is life still so hard? Why do we still see atrocity today? How could something like the Holocaust happen after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead? How come Satan still seems to have so much power and influence in our lives, in our world today? How how does this all fit together? Well, let me give you one final illustration from World War II. Seems like that's where the stories are coming from today. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, you know that first scene, that horrific, brutal, bloody battle scene depicting the Battle of Normandy, 1944, when the Allies launched this huge attack. I think it was the largest amphibious attack ever launched. Hundreds of thousands of people involved in that on the coast of northern France against the German forces. And that was a terrible day of fighting. Tens of thousands of soldiers lost their lives on that day. But by the end of the day, the Allies had won that battle. And that established a stronghold there in northern France. That established this beachhead. And it was a position of strength to then begin pushing the German forces back and back and back. And that day became known as D-Day. It was the turning point in the war, many people believe. It was this decisive, pivotal moment that changed the course of the war. But it was almost another year before the Germans finally surrendered. It was 1945 by the time the Germans formally surrendered. And the, and the day after that, I think May the 8th, 1945, that day was declared to be V-Day or V-E Day, Victory for Europe Day. That was formally the end of the war. But between D-Day in 1944 and V-Day in 1945, there was still a tremendous loss of life. There was still huge suffering. But the point is that after V-Day, the outcome of the war was certain. After V-Day, the outcome of that war was never in doubt. It was only a matter of time. Yes, there was huge loss of life. There was huge pain and there was huge suffering after D-Day. But the outcome of that war was decided largely through the Battle of Normandy in 1944. Now, you can hear the parallels already, can't you? One writer uses that illustration from World War II to describe the way that the victory of Jesus is outworked in the world. The cross was our D-Day. That was the day when Jesus died and the day when he won a battle, the decisive battle over sin and death and Satan, and he achieved a stronghold over the enemy. He achieved a beachhead over the forces of evil. That was the pivotal moment in human history. It was the pivotal moment in God's whole redemptive story. And we know now that V-Day is coming. Victory Day, when Jesus returns, there's going to be a V-Day. On that day, he will fully establish his kingdom, bring it to fullness and completion. On that day, there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. On that day, it will just be God's peace and justice that prevails and Christ will reign directly over all 
No more evil. But we live between D-Day and V-Day. That's our home right now in the present. That's where we're traveling. We live between the cross and the new heavens and the new earth. We live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And in this time, there is still a lot of hardship. Just as between D-Day and V-Day, there's still huge suffering. There's still real pain. There's real anguish. There's loneliness and struggle and grief and trial and just sometimes life is really, really hard. That's the reality of living where we are. But the point is that because D-Day has happened, because the cross has happened, the corner has been turned. The stronghold has been established and the outcome of the war is not in doubt. We are not fighting a battle with an uncertain outcome. We're not fighting a battle which has an undecided ending, but because there has been a D-Day, there will be a V-Day. And we know that. There is certainty with that. And that should give us hope as we look towards the future coming of Christ. That should bring us right back to the central message of Daniel, that video described. Hope that motivates faithfulness. Because we know that D-Day is behind us and we know that V-Day is ahead of us. And even though you may be in the midst of the hardest time of your life right now, and you may be barely holding on, you can know that V-Day is coming. And that hope, that incredible hope that one day this trouble will end, there's going to be a day when evil ends and Christ reigns and Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye. And that hope should motivate our faithfulness in the present, shouldn't it? Should motivate us to hang on in there, motivate us to hold on when it's really, really tough. Motivate us to be able to take another step, to hold our ground, to carry on, to persevere and to remain faithful to God because we know that he's got our lives in his hands and it's going to be okay in the end. So may we make peace with this idea that life is hard and it's going to be hard. And may we be motivated by that incredible hope that Jesus is coming again. And in the meantime, may we look to him. May we look to Jesus and fix our eyes on him, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. May we consider him who endured such hostility, such opposition, that we may not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to lift up to you anyone in this room right now who's really struggling. Anyone sitting here, Lord, with a broken heart? Anyone sitting here, Jesus, with a heavy heart today? 